This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Pentagon's marquee artificial intelligence initiative, known as Project Maven, is moving to a new home. It's about to leave the office of the Secretary of Defense. And for where it's headed, we turn to Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, reporting from the GeoInt conference in Denver. And Justin, tell us what is going on with this big project. Yeah, it's headed to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency as part of the Biden administration's fiscal year 2023 budget request. And the program has been run out of OSD since it started back in 2017. It was really started as the Pentagon's first big AI pathfinder program. And for the past five years, the project has focused on developing machine learning software that can actually analyze and detect objects in images and videos taken by military drones in the Middle East and elsewhere. For NGA, they've repeatedly stressed in recent years that they need to use AI and machine learning to process and analyze all this satellite imagery and other geoint data that's increasingly available. NGA Director Vice Admiral Robert Sharp called taking over Project Maven a, quote, great responsibility during his keynote address here earlier this week. And he said NGA would be reaching out to industry soon with more details. We want to move forward together so we can deliver GeoInt at the pace that our warfighters and decision makers need. We have to be able to keep up with rapidly emerging digital trends. We have to be able to accelerate our ability to provide detections at the speed of mission to give our customers tactical, operational, and strategic advantage. All right, so Project Maven has been run out of the OSD's office, and now it's being run out of the DOD OSD's office and down just a few miles down 395 to 95 to the NGA. Why now, though, Justin? Well, NGA has been a partner on Project Maven since it started, helping to provide imagery and other data necessary for the companies working on the project to train their algorithms. And NGA has also been working on computer vision and machine learning projects with similar aims to, as I said earlier, analyze all this imagery and video that's, that's out there now. And Mark Munsell, NGA's Deputy Director for Data and Digital Innovation, says NGA can really learn from all the things that Project Maven has learned over the past five years and then integrate the software into its own infrastructure. He said during a media roundtable that since Project Maven's lines of effort are really all focused on GeoN, it just makes sense for NGA to be the one to take it over. Most of Project Maven's lines of effort are GeoN, whether it's motion imagery or satellite imagery or computer vision you know, with photographs, a lot of their work propensity of their work was GWIN. So it made a lot of sense to take what they've learned, take the infrastructure that they've built and the experience they've learned from the companies and find a, a GWIN home for it, if you will. And again, that's Mark Munsell, NGA's Deputy Director for Data and Digital Innovation. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Now that this project Maven is moving to the NGA, does NGA plan to redo things there? Well, not a wholesale redo, but Munsell says NGA will be evaluating the program as it works through the administrative tasks of taking over contracts and getting personnel and leadership in place over the next few months. And NGA will really be assessing how Project Maven's capabilities fit into the broader capabilities across NGA and other defense and intelligence components. Munsell says they want to make sure 
that successful algorithms are being shared across the GOM community and there's not duplication of effort. But he's also quick to stress that this evaluation is not going to slow things down for Project Maven, which has been known really for being a pretty fast government software development project. It's about the agency saying, we, we need a holistic look. What Maven's been doing is very important to us. Some of the internal computer vision programs are very important to us. What the Army is doing with computer vision is very important to us. And so the assessment is not a pause. It's our charge as GEOINT functional managers to help prioritize, to help understand the investments, and then to, you know, with data and statistics, offer opportunities to, to improve. Is it fair to say that Project Maven has had some progress? Has they accomplished things since the startup back in 17? Well, from what we know publicly, it's been moving forward pretty rapidly since 2017. And if you remember, it actually garnered major, major headlines in 2018 when Google dropped out of the project after thousands of the, of the company's engineers protested the involvement in, in a project that has to do with military and, uh, and government surveillance. But Project Maven has continued to grow well past that controversy. Its budget is up to about $250 million per year, according to DOD's budget request. We don't know what they're requesting for next year because intelligence community budgets are, are classified. But it's fair to say it's probably going to be somewhere along those lines again. And according to those budget documents, they've been doing all sorts of algorithms to automate the processing, exploitation, and dissemination of video feeds from UAVs, from tactical all the way up to the big uh, MQ-9-type drones. It's also been automating analysis of military and commercial satellite imagery. So that's, of course, why it's so, so, much, so much of interest to the NGA. And, of course, NGA is all about overhead imagery. Does Project Maven and its offshoots of products and capabilities have application beyond that generalized area of overhead imagery? Yeah, again, according to those budget documents, they've moved beyond imagery in recent years to exploit things like captured enemy material, CEM in intelligence parlance, which, you know, there's a special operations raid on a compound and they come away with a bunch of documents and other types of data, CDs and things like that. Apparently, Project Maven has moved into being able to automate the the analysis of stuff like that. Maritime intelligence, it's a little unclear exactly what that means, but that's also in these budget documents. And then publicly available information, so that could mean social media and things like that. It's unclear what's going to happen to those lines of effort with the project moving over to NGA, but they have been moving beyond just overhead imagery in recent years. And Justin, while we have you, you have been a couple of days out at the GeoInt conference there in Denver, or more precisely, the Denver airport environs. I guess if you stand up on the roof, you can see Denver, Colorado itself from there. What are some of the other key trends? What What's the feeling in GeoInt this year? Well, of course, there's been a lot of focus on the crisis in Ukraine and how GeoInt overhead imagery really enabled the United States and its allies to get ahead of Russia's invasion, to expose their their preparations for invasion, and then to actually track the progress of this war, to track potential war crimes and things like that as well. And from intelligence community leaders, you're hearing a lot about how they want to be more open going forward about what they know about sharing things with industry and, of course, working with commercial 
industry, commercial satellite providers are providing so much information about this war these days. And so I think you're hearing a lot of words like open and, and unclassified because the intelligence community wants to be a little bit more open going forward and carry the success I guess, from this Ukraine crisis going forward. So you have the uniforms and you have the gray suits of places like the NGA and the NSA kind of rubbing shoulders with this entrepreneurial SpaceX type of crowd too then there. Yeah, it's it's a, I mean, it's a big exhibitor floor. There's a lot of vendors in this geoint space, if you will, you know, not just classic imagery, electro optical imagery, but also radar, synthetic aperture radar, satellite providers, radio frequency, uh, geolocation data is becoming a big emphasis for agencies like NGA and the NRO. So it's a, it's a growing industry, and you can see the government wanting to take advantage of that. I'll bet there's some pretty good swag, too, huh? I've mostly just been sticking to the food, Tom, but th- there is a lot of good swag out there as well. All right, bring us back some good squeeze balls. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, thanks, Tom. And check out all of his coverage of GeoInt at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com.